We are good. Okay. Hi, Stefan. Hey. <laughs> hey. Um, welcome. Uh, yeah, good, good. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Um, yeah, new show. Uh, always uh, good to chat about Bitcoin and Lightning and, uh, you know, like the Lightning gaming space, which I know you are big in. Yeah, it's, um, we decided to do a, a niche of a niche podcast to talk about gaming and Lightning. If Bitcoin isn't niche enough, we go with Lightning. And if Lightning isn't niche enough, we go <laughs> Lightning Gaming. Lightning but... Gaming, yeah, it's another level. <laughs> yeah, it's niche now, but hopefully, you know, this is what brings Bitcoin mainstream or, you know, at least helps along the way. Um, yeah. yeah. Sure. Anyway, um, just a hello to the audience. Um, for those who don't know, this is uh, Lightning Lap. It's the show where we talk about Bitcoin gaming and get our host to do a lap around Satoshi Village, uh, but more on that later. Uh, my very special guest today is, I'm very excited, and I know I always say I'm very excited, but today I am actually very excited. We have the uh, the famous, I would say, Stefan Levera. So thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Just before I start, I just want to remind you of a little anecdote. I think when we first met in Japan, uh, I don't know if you remember this, uh, but I think a lot of people got a little bit drunk and some people bailed out, but there were three of us and we headed to karaoke. Yes, yes, you, me, and Teriko. Teriko, yeah, you remember well. Um, I just thought um, when we went there, I um, I decided to sing a song, especially for you, knowing that you have like an Austrian background and libertarian principles. I thought, I, you know, I'm going to sing uh, The Taxman by The Beatles. <laughs> but, yeah, great song. Great song, because like, the context of that song was like, I think they were so pissed off about, you know, tax... And so they were like, this is like a tax protest song, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was, um, I was surprised because like most Bitcoiners don't know about it, but I thought like it would be like the, one of the Bitcoin theme tunes. But yeah, you're right. I think the, the Beatles, I think they wrote it because they were like, the official tax was like 95% suddenly, but they had to pay back yeah. taxes. So it ended up yeah, being like yeah. 105% or something. And yeah, then, I mean, I don't know, I know the full context, context of it, but uh, I can, as a libertarian, I can certainly appreciate the the, the desire to rage against the taxes, and uh, certainly I appreciate that. So, and I mean, I kind of I kind of knew all that story. So, you know, it was one of those ones that had been floating around, and you know, obviously the Beatles, very famous band. So you kind of, yeah, it's a cool story. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to get a list of kind of Bitcoin songs together for when we can all meet up again. So we got like money by <laughs> like Eric Chris, pump it up. You know that, don't you know? Pump it up. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> I know that one. Okay, yeah, pump it up. Yeah. But there's um, what about that other one? Do you remember this is like an OG song? It's um, you know, uh, I have been holding for the longest time. Whoa. Oh. Oh, no, no, this time. You know, Zao Tongs, that's it. Zao Tongs, okay. they did their own parody version of it. That was incredible. That's back from like, I think 2013 or 14. It was like an, a real OG kind of parody song. Really good one. It's on YouTube. You was that like a Zao Bitcoin Tong song? Holding. Was that a Bitcoin? Um, well, it, it, it wasn't a Bitcoin song. It was a normal song, but somebody did like a Bitcoin version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Someone, made a, someone made like a parody song and turned it into a Bitcoin song about hodling, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it might have even predated the hodling term. So it was actually about holding, not hodling. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Because I, I don't know if it's true, but when I was in Tokyo, I met a guy who was a little bit drunk, but he claimed to have made the hodl word. He was, that was his thing at the Tokyo Bitcoin 
Right. Meet up. He said that he was a guy who kind of got drunk and misspelt it. But oh, okay. I mean, I, mean, I, I guess it's hard, hard to prove these things. Maybe he would have to go back and prove that he owns that forum nim at least. Yeah, uh, it could be because I, I heard, heard that guy turned into a bcasher though. The, well, the guy who coined the term that we now use, HODL, that guy turned into a bcasher. That makes sense. That gives evidence to his theory because that was a Bitcoin Tokyo meetup, which was run by Roger Ver, and he told me this before, right. like Bitcoin cash existed so that whole meetup right. kind of well that meetup died and they all went to a bitcoin cash meetup yeah so yeah. That, that makes sense but he was a little bit angry that like because a lot of people were making t-shirts and stuff you know yeah, uh, yeah. and like he like didn't cash in on it or something he should have trademarked it I don't know. well it's 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 a, it's a costly error you know um just oh i just got reminded some more uh, bitcoin songs uh there's uh as Giacomo Zico might say that uh, britney spears toxic or um, system of a down toxicity, you know the the toxicity of our city, you know that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ones. Like there's um, money by like um, Pink Floyd, right? I I guess I'm kind of like a classic rock guy, so all my knowledge of music is like pre 1979 or something. Right. So, yeah, yeah. The old 70s rock and stuff like that. A lot yeah. of rap music. Yeah, you're, you're into like um like Iron Maiden and things like that. Uh, actually, that's more heavy metal. I've recently started to listen to Iron Maiden, but normally it's like Led Zeppelin and stuff. It's I guess like Stones. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Led Zeppelin's pretty cool, man. I'll, I'll listen to a few of their songs. I haven't, I can't remember them off the top of my head now, but um, yeah, so like some really cool songs. No songs about in their, money, in their catalog. <laughs> but like all those bands got hit by this tax in England, which I think is one of the reason why they all went to America. I think you know the whole like breaking America a lot yeah. of it's for tax reasons. So, well, that's 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 the thing. That's the thing, right? It's like you go to where the frontier is because, yeah, it's a bit high risk, but it's also massive opportunity there. And that's that's just like Bitcoin as well. And that's also like Bitcoin Lightning and Lightning Gaming, right? You're out on the frontier. It's high risk, but it's high reward too. Like there's a massive market out there. There's a lot of opportunity and a lot of things, you know, whether you're a user or whether you are a developer or a builder, someone, an entrepreneur in the space, there's so much opportunity to come in these next you know, five, 10 years. I think this kind of goes into a theory that I think a few people have had, but kind of like Bitcoin is like the punk rock or it is like the rock and roll yeah. movement, right? Like you can't really start a band now and, um, and change the world, but um, you know, you can kind of like, I think it was David Bowie said, I saw in an interview, like he wouldn't be a musician now. He would like be a programmer or something. <laughs> when he was young, yeah, he wanted to like change society. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think um, if you know uh, Coinshaw and Z, he's done a talk. And I believe this was Baltic Honey Badger 2019. So we're talking around September or October-ish of 2019. And... I think that was essentially the theme of his talk. It was like, Bitcoin is punk rock. This is like, it's a movement, right? It's not, it, yes, it's technology. Yes, there's like politics and economics and stuff, but it's a movement. It's about people who care about their freedom and who care about not being censored in the way they want to use their money and save or spend. And so I, I really think it is that. And, you know, uh, people are starting to see it for that as well. Like if you look at Nick Carter's piece, uh, A Most Peaceful Revolution, or other people, even... Um, Tim Draper's kid, I forgot his name, Adam Draper. Yeah, Adam I think Draper. he just recently tweeted out something saying, yeah, you know, it's like, um, you know, the internet is like the empire and Bitcoin is part of the resistance. It's like, you're part of the rebel alliance. <laughs> it's like Star Wars, right? It's like, you're the, 
if you're a Bitcoin person, you're 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 on the rebel side. You're like you're fighting for good against the forces of evil. So if you're a Bitcoiner, you're a Jedi, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. maybe like the Jedi masters are like the real, you know, like they're like the leaders of the, you know, people like the people like developing and coding this out and making the tools for us to use. They're like the Jedi masters and a whole bunch of us are just like fighting in the revolution to like give everyone freedom over their money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think kind of, the, I think not just like programmers are important, but like people like you and stuff also play a vital role. Right. You know, um, and I think kind of the community in a way is, you know, it's kind of what the programs, what the program is programmed for, you know. Um, but yeah, but having said that, it's it, like Bitcoin, it, there's not many other disciplines that, well, there's not many other things that encompass so many different disciplines, right? You know, it kind of has technology, it has philosophy, it has economics, it has politics, it, you know, it has all sorts. So, um, well, let's just start here. Like, so what was your introduction to Bitcoin? Because you were like a, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were like a, a traditional finance guy. Was it PwC or something you worked for? Or? Yeah, so I used to work in big four accounting. That was how I started. So I, in so in Australia, I'm a chartered accountant, which is equivalent to like US CPA. And I think in the UK, it's also called chartered accountant. Yeah. Um, And so that was my career. Like my normie career was being, you know, doing chartered accounting stuff. And so I was doing kind of like internal audit and similar related risks sort of work inside companies and big banks and things. So I was at Deloitte and big banks like Commonwealth Bank of Australia, which is Australia's biggest bank back then. Um, and so I like, I guess the thing is, I was always interested on the side in terms of Austrian economics and libertarianism, right? So okay. it wasn't really a professional interest that brought me into Bitcoin. It was my side interest that did. But it's just that I had some experience from inside the beast because I'd been inside the banking world and I have some exposure to that and what it looks like inside that banking world. So for me, it's like most people, it was more like my second or third touch point, right? So I think my first touch point was like, some slash dot article, right? And I, you know, I, I kind so, of so, saw so, it. And just so like, you oh, were like yeah, the storm I didn't really understand the implication of it, you know? And so then the thing that made me like have my kind of sit up my orange pill moment was actually an Eric Voorhees article from, and now I was reading this in December, 2012. Wow. Pretty so early. I was Would in you... like, the, you know, the back of a car on a family holiday back in Sri Lanka. And I was just like scrolling <laughs> and I saw this article and it just like it just hit me it was just like wow this thing could really uh, it just has these special characteristics and i think the way eric Voorhees, obviously i have my disagreements with eric Voorhees nowadays but still like he was the one who basically put me onto this back then and so then you know like most people i i started my rabbit hole journey then i was like hungry for bitcoin content i was trying to find articles and read about it and learn about it and obviously one of the early people you know, is someone like Andreas Antonopoulos, right? There were like YouTube videos and things like that. So I was watching some of Andreas and obviously I already had a lot of the Austrian kind of background. So I was already very much like anti-central banking and pro free market money. It was just that I sensed that it was mostly hopeless uh, until I saw Bitcoin and was, you know, explained uh, and, and was learning a little bit more about why Bitcoin might work where previously other things have failed. And so then 2013 was kind of my journey and I, you know, was 
periodically writing a few posts here and there, but I wasn't like, I, I wasn't like doing anything that kind of became famous in the community, but I was kind of chatting in the background with people like Pierre Richard and Michael Goldstein and stuff like that. And I was interacting with Pierre on Twitter and things like that. So that was, that was like my early exposure to this stuff. And so I was following, you know, Nakamoto Institute and just already supplementing with my own understanding from reading Austrian economics and things like that, that was where the significance of it came through for me, really. So it was more like a side interest, but I was, if you will, primed because I was already a fan of Austrian economics, a fan of the free market, anti-central banking, and I was already a bit more of a tech-savvy person, right? I played games growing up. I had studied information systems at uni in addition to accounting and finance stuff, and I was already a free market guy. So in some ways, I kind of hit the right markers or things that were that primed me to see bitcoin for what it is and so that was what gave me a huge advantage in understanding it a bit earlier than like i think most people did because a lot of people were thinking of it purely as like oh it's you know only payments or it's only this that or the other and then a lot of people got confused and went into like random altcoins and i, I for me it was just never i was never really like into altcoins like i just basically saw bitcoin i was like oh this is amazing and there were times where, you know, as you probably know, back in those days, there were all these different coins, like whatever, Aurora coin and yeah. PP coin and name coin and colored yeah. coins. I mean, there were so many of these old coins and I, made I never really found them interesting. <laughs> yeah. Huh? I made a few tokens back in the day. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I know people tried out things like counterparty. And yeah, other, yeah. I mean, there was all, yeah, all these different things back then. But I just never, I guess... Like I had heard, oh, Prime Coin. Maybe we'll have a coin that comes up with prime numbers. But I never even like bought bought that stuff or mined it. I just, I basically just got into Bitcoin and only Bitcoin. And I've been bi only Bitcoin the whole way. Uh, and so I guess I have a different journey to most people compared to most people because a lot of people have that journey where they where they went the uh, the scenic route through the the shit coins and then they came back to realizing where Bitcoin was the value. Whereas my journey was a little bit more. I was reading more like Nakamoto Institute and people like Peter Serta, Tua de Mista, Conrad Graf. Um, even Safe Team wasn't around in those days, right? He, he, he mm. sort of came around a couple of years later. Um, and then so I was chatting with Safe Team in the background as well because I was kind of networking in the background with people like Pierre and stuff. And so, yeah, so essentially that was how I kind of came into the space. I think at the time, the rhetoric and the narrative was more anti-bank in general, as opposed to being anti-central bank. So my view is Bitcoin challenges central banks much, much more than it challenges just banking. I, I see cool. a role for banking. It's just that we have to reimagine that role of banking, right? In yeah, Bitcoin, we like say you be your own bank, right? You run your own Bitcoin node and blah, blah, blah. But you might still use a, a service provider, right? So like, like it could be like the unchained capital model, the hybrid sort of model, or like it might be more like a family or community node sort of model where maybe you run your node for your family and they all kind of onboard to your bank and you are the banker for your family and your close friends, maybe. And so I think that's kind of the model that we have to reimagine. Um, but that's, I mean, yeah. yeah I remember so many, just to kind of yeah. rip up, on that a little bit i remember i think it was peter well i was speaking to once and he was like it was kind of joined the whole scaling debate and everything and um he, he said something that was quite interesting he said this isn't what he mm. wanted it's not an ideal situation but he would prefer like um a bitcoin where it's expensive to send but everybody could like validate the institutions that use it 
rather than a Bitcoin that's easy to send, but nobody knows what's going on kind of thing. So I kind yeah. of think that was like an interesting point, you know, and, and that kind of comes down to like, I think if Bitcoin, obviously the more people who run nodes and can manage their node and their keys, the better, but obviously not a lot of people aren't going to be able to do that. So if there's going to be different layers of trust, like you said, that's like a family bank or maybe there's just a reputable, a reputable institution where they have like some sort of open accounting system with Bitcoin. Uh, I think it, it's still a better world. Um, but yeah, but you said quite a lot there. It's quite interesting. Um, something that I found quite interesting is that you were, you so you were already kind of like an Austrian economics guy whilst working in mainstream finance. But what made you like the Austrian economics guy? Like, did you have a, a moment with your family always like you know Austrian inclined, or did you have like a, a light bulb? Yeah. Moment? So or the funny just, like, thing is. I, so like a lot of young boys, you spend a lot of time on the internet, right? And so for me, when I was like 14 or 15, I would go on IRC, internet relay chat. Now for people who are a bit younger, you might not know, but that's kind of like an OG internet chat thing, right? Yeah. So when I was like 14, I was hanging out in, uh, in, in funnily enough, an Australian politics channel. And this guy kept linking to Mises Daily articles, right? And I was like, what the hell? That, that's never going to work. Like anarcho-capitalism is not going to happen. And then like eventually... I started, it started to make a lot more sense to me than what I was learning in my high school economics and business studies and those kinds of courses. So it started to just make a lot more sense to me. And then I, that was where I started to go down the whole Austrian rabbit Logic. hole. So, <laughs> yeah. So it just logically, it just made so much more sense. Like it just kind of clicked. It just, it just was a much more correct paradigm to think about economics and what what's the impact of a minimum wage or the impact of x y and z government interventions you start to think of it from that point of view and so that for me like i've been into austrian economics well now over half my life right like i'm in my early 30s now and i was that started that process for me so kind of around like 15 ish i started like going becoming more and more libertarian and so then like when you're a bit younger you kind of read more articles right like you might not be able to like you know, be able to digest a full you know 800 page book but you start you start with articles and the smaller books and then as you kind of get more into it you graduate up to reading the full length books and economic treatises and things like that and so that is essentially what informs my perspective like when i'm doing interviews or when i'm talking about things or writing that informs my perspective about a lot of things uh, it, coming from a more free market perspective of trying to uh, like, yeah, essentially that informs my perspective. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of like in a way you just got exposure to certain arguments. So I think a lot of the issue is people just never hear the Austrian argument, you know? Um, yeah, like, like, exactly. Like I, you know, to be honest, we don't really like in England, we didn't even, we don't really obviously, general primary schools and high schools don't teach economics but that's you know but if you ever watch the news or something you know it would just be a given that the current monetary theory is the status quo and you know um i remember just i had a moment when um it was actually in australia so we were actually in sydney at the same time it's, it's surprising we we never met because we kind of had our bitcoin moment at the same time but i guess we, we kind of miss each other but I remember there was a guy who, who he just said something like, um, uh, inflation is a tax on savings or something. And you know, something yeah. like that. And it's like, 
it is a tax on saving. It's like, you know, why am I saving? You know, <laughs> kind of things like little things. You just <laughs> have to question the mainstream, you know. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It just takes a bit of learning. And I think that's part of what we're doing with these podcasts and articles and online and social media is that we're doing an end run around the typical top-down ways of learning, right? Like in school, they have a curriculum and they've got a certain top-down thing where they teach you the Keynesian stuff or the monetarist stuff or the otherwise interventionist stuff. Where do you actually learn the truth? Where do you actually go and learn that? Well, sometimes you've got to go and find it for yourself. A lot of it is when you... I was going to say, a lot of it, I think, is when you actually start paying tax. And what you, what you kind yeah. of, like, m- my first job was actually in Sydney, Australia, like my first real job, you know. And um, n- normally when you get a pay slip in a company, the tax is kind of, it's hidden from you. You don't really see it. But my boss, who was actually, he was quite, he was actually, he used to be a labor man, you know, he was a quite socialist thinking, but until he started to run a business. And every day he'd give us the paychecks, which in Australia you get paid like uh, every two weeks, which is a bit different to the rest of the world. Every day he would give it us. He would say, this is what I'm paying you. This is what you're getting. This is going to the government. And that little, that actually, I think a lot of people don't see that. But once you start to see kind of tax you pay, I think that is also an educational moment for a lot of people. Um, Of course, 100%. I had the same phenomenon in terms of, obviously I was libertarian, but for many of my friends from university many of them were lefties lefty type people but then once they started like earning real money and paying taxes that was when they started like now they didn't all become libertarians sure. but they a bit more conservative started yeah. to have more of an appreciation yeah. for this idea of hey you know why are taxes so high why should why are we paying this much yeah yeah so, speaking to my grandfather he used to tell me that when he started to work he used to go on, on holiday off of the interest of his general savings account you know yeah just like you tell young people that that you can go on holiday off the interest of your just normal banking account it would be like it sounds yeah. foreign i right? mean it's even crazy. when i was a kid like that used to be a thing it used to be kind of they would teach you because this was back before interest rates were basically zero uh and they you actually used to get a return from that and funnily enough i think it kind of robbed people of the joy of saving and seeing it grow mm. because yeah. you kind of I think for me, I was one of those people, like even from a young age, I started working at like 14 years and eight months and I, I was always a bit more of a saver, right? Like I would buy and I would save. So I think my story is probably a bit atypical, right? Whereas a lot of people come into Bitcoin and then they start to think more about saving because now, you know, they're in this um, environment where, you know, I think historically or at least like when we were younger when we were kids it used to be more like hey you save up in the bank account and you get some interest and yep. that used to be a really cool motivation factor for me because i used to feel like yeah i'm i'm like saving yeah, and it's, i'm all about I'm incentives more, right? <laughs> well, you know and yeah. whereas now people are being robbed of that in some sense because if you leave your money in the fiat bank account you're losing 10 15 per year easily Crazy. and so yeah. in terms of purchasing power right so um that is another thing that I think Bitcoin changes for people. And hopefully people will start to appreciate that more once, once they can start to really truly save using Bitcoin. Yeah, well, I think it, it's obviously like I should give a disclaimer, you know, obviously Bitcoin is a risky asset. Don't put more than you're willing to lose, et cetera, et cetera. But I think for, for most people, if you work a normal job and you, you have a little bit of cash money, there's no way... There's nowhere to put that, right? You're, like, you're kind of not an accredited investor. You can't invest it in assets or stocks. 
the best you can do is maybe try and get on the housing market. But I guess Bitcoin is, you know, that accessible asset that anybody, you know, kind of, you know, you know, preserve some of their wealth. Um, it's actually quite interesting. So we, um, Mint Gox, this a uh, monthly esports event. We do. We were, we started it almost a year ago, the first one in March, and people have basically played games. Um, they've competed in esports competitions and they've earned some Bitcoin. And the ones that have saved that are doing a lot better now <laughs> since the, the Bitcoin <laughs> price. So hey, they would have they would have gone like ten x. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. It's just kind of, but just that feeling of like you've got something you've saved it and it's worth more right but, you know it's kind of and th through gaming as well right you know it's a and a lot of these people are kids from you know we don't know exactly where they're from but there are people from you know more poorer countries who've just got like a, an internet connection and they can just about play so i think i think it's quite a interesting kind of a dynamic there um so what so we were i i, I was in Sydney. You know when we're live, I believe we are back again. Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah. Sorry about that, folks. We just had an issue with uh, the stream cutting out. Anyway, uh, Stefan was just telling us about how Bitcoin is in Australia. Um, so, yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, like when I was in Australia, I kind of got the impression that Australians are quite. Back again. Um, yep. Australians are kind of quite. I think they're quite down to earth people. They t tend to generally have like a good kind of like bullshit detector and <laughs> tend to be a little bit anti-authority. Do you, do you think that's fair to say historically? But then you kind of... Historically, yes. Yeah. I think nowadays, <laughs> well, given all the, uh, the, the way how, how quickly people folded for all this Hysteria 19 stuff, cool. I think uh, that's like a... It's like a historical uh, yeah. artifact of Australian culture where, you know, there used to be kind of this idea of like, you know, Ned Kelly and, you know, mm, yeah, Logan Kelly, and sure. kind of famous Australian rebel characters and larrikins and people like that. I think certainly that's kind of the international perspective people have of like this kind of easygoing country where people are not afraid to have a laugh and laugh at themselves and laugh about things and kind of take what's called, you know, what's called a she'll be right attitude to things that's certainly what it was when i was growing up but i think we were kind of on this big down um where you know people externally view us that way and maybe the australians you meet when you when they're traveling you know in non-hysteria times the, those are the ones where you know they'll be more kind of um they'll exaggerate those elements of their personality right like they're kind mm. of joke joke uh what's they're, they're very you know jocular or they like to joke a lot um they yeah, they don't um, take themselves too seriously. And I think for the most part, that's still there. But I think it certainly, I think there's kind of like a marketing angle, right? Every country is a brand, right? Cool. Every country has their I'm own I'm a kind gentleman, of apparently. Yeah. So I think that's, that's kind of um, the thing. But yeah, certainly growing up, it was very much like that. It was very much like people love to, you know, this whole idea of the larrikin culture, like the people who are... Like, that's, is that what you say? The term happy... As Larry comes from, happy I think. go lucky or whatever. Uh, yeah. oh, happy as Larry. Country, right? um, I think we have a. Right. I don't know. It, it, we have a term in England, um, but we say I'm as happy as Larry. I think you have it in Australia. Right. I think that comes from the Larrikins. But what are the Larrikins? I've heard it said, but I'm not too sure who they are. It might be quite interesting. I don't oh, think like anybody it. outside of Australia like knows like about them. Fun loving. It's meant to be kind of like a. 
I guess I haven't really thought about it, but I guess if I had to define it, it's kind of like a, a fun loving rogue trickster fun person, you know? So they, they don't necessarily oh, obey all the rules, yeah. but they're there to kind of, they generally are the kinds of person, you know, think sort of like a class clown character. Like a rogue, right? sort maybe? Of like, oh. Yeah, there, there's some level of like rogue and some level of outlaw or rebel a larrikin, according to the dictionary, is Australian and New Zealand, a term for a, boist- a boisterous, often badly behaved young man, a person with apparent yeah. disregard for convention, a maverick. Yeah, 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 100%, 100% that, yeah. So I think that is very much what the Australian culture is brand idealized is. as in some ways, right? That's a brand of Australia, right? Like we, we produce men who are like that, like in some sense. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I think things change over time. And I think, um, you know, that culture is sort of going a bit. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Maybe yeah. in the next few years they can rekindle, Australia can rekindle that uh, that kind of brand and image, if you will. But I think for now, it's, it, it seems to me more like an out, outward image that is projected than a reality. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's kind of right it's interesting times, right? So all these kind of old stereotypes and things start to break away. Like I, I was kind of, I used to live in Japan and I went back to England. And one of one of my thoughts was that I kind of saw Japan as quite, um, it's a great place, but it's quite kind of strict, right? It's kind of, yeah. in a way, it's really, I'm going to offend a lot of people saying this, but it's a little bit like North Korea that was invaded by the Americans and kind of forced to open up. It was a hermit state. It had like a kind of dictatorship kind of thing right going on. It's it's kind of forced to open up. But that culture of kind of strict and follow the rules has kind of always been there. And then ironically, in England, which I thought was like this freedom loving, you know, a lot of, you know, <laughs> you know, the kind of Anglosphere, like liberty and all this kind of stuff. I'm locked in my house in England, not allowed to meet my family. Well, all my friends in Japan are going out drinking. It's kind of weird how like all my assumptions yeah. were completely wrong, you know. Uh, so, but yeah, I guess you know it's 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 2021, right? You know, we have Bitcoin is at like thirty, forty thousand. The world is a strange place. <laughs> yeah, you know? things are kind of topsy turvy, and things are changing. You know, what 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 things what countries became known for, they don't necessarily stay that way. And I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think in a way, like people in a way, they don't kind of, um, so what, they don't symbolize themselves as, they don't relate to the country as much anymore. They relate to maybe their, you know, probably their internet groups, you know, what forums yeah, are, I, I, are you in, like what chats, what spheres, that's probably where your nationality is. As well. okay. You know, like, because we're all, everyone's kind of plugged into the same, you know, Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and whatever other platforms. Or Discord or whatever. I know the gaming people go yeah, on. We're on Discord. Um, they're kind of more plugged into those spheres. And so, you know, I think growing up, it might have been like there was probably four or five channels that most people were watching. And there was kind of a shared cultural knowledge of, oh, those jokes on those shows on Seinfeld or Simpsons or How I Met Your Mother and whatever shows that like everyone was watching. Uh, and it's kind of changing mm. over time. So. Yeah. I think it's kind of splintering off a little bit, but in some ways it's a good thing that people can go do their own thing. They find their own interest. Um, but in other ways, maybe there's less of a shared cultural similarity. It was a time where everybody watched the same show. And we have that now. There are like some big shows that come out, but now it's like, what are you watching on Netflix? I'm watching this. Oh, I, 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 haven't, I, haven't, is that, I haven't watched that one. I'm watching this one. No, I haven't watched that one. <laughs> yeah. kind of, so yeah. kind of, it's quite an interesting time, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but this is a gaming podcast. I just, I, I, I know, like, you know, you're not famous for being a gamer, but I'm sure you must have had a gaming moment when you were young. Do you have, like, a game oh, you liked or any, any? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I played lots of games as a kid. Like, okay, I, cool. I would play um, Counter Strike, StarCraft, oh. um, all kinds of real time strategy games. I played um, some of those games like Diablo and similar kinds of games. I was never like awesome at them, right? But uh, I, I was probably okay at Counter Strike amongst my group of friends, and I was like oh. decent at it back then. Um, I, what else did I play? Um, some of those more role playing kind of games and things like Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic and Star Wars games like Rogue Squadron and Jedi Knight and yeah, a bunch of games like that. What else did I play? Like Halo on Xbox One, like well, I think the first Xbox. Counter Strike um, is quite a kind of um, interesting one you brought up because at the next Mint Gox, we're having a, 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 the second Counter Strike Bitcoin competition. So nice. I'm not nice. sure if you're. I mean, I, I, yeah. <laughs> well, like, oh, not... well, I mean, yeah, but maybe, maybe I'd play. But I mean, honestly, like my reflexes and like my skill at Counter Strike nowadays would just be horrible. It's insane. Right? Like, I don't think. Oh, I'm it's insane how good some all, people are. You know? like, actually, well. Um, the company I work for, Zebedee, we, we've actually integrated Bitcoin into Counter-Strike. So this is the kind of thing we're rolling out. We're rolling out kind of public Counter-Strike servers where you can earn Bitcoin over Lightning. So we're going to have yeah. like a range of different servers, more like noob-friendly servers where it's like right, sponsored yeah, yeah. by, you know, an exchange <laughs> or something. So everybody kind of wins, you know, but if you're better, you win more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe I mean, I, we can have you uh, one of those. There's like the whole pub thing, pub level games, and then there's like actual, you know, clans or whatever level games where there's like more semi, let's call it like semi pro or kind of more serious people who take it more seriously, and then obviously the pro level, which is just like well, <laughs> yeah, well above. Um, but I mean, every now and again, when I was a bit like maybe in my twenties, we would play some games like just with friends as well, like play some StarCraft together or play some Counter Strike together or whatever. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I have played Counter-Strike Go as well. I have played Counter-Strike... Um, oh, so you are playing 1.6 before? Yeah, so, yeah. I played most, a lot of 1.6, mm -hmm. and then later I played the new one as well, um, the like the current one. Yes, yes, go. Um, oh. that, yeah, last time I played... Yeah, and oh, I used to play a lot of Team Fortress 2 as well. That was a really mm -hmm. fun game. That was a really fun. One of those like online games where you're kind of collaborating with the team. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of fun as well. Um, what else? Uh, age of empires i think i played three maybe i played that yeah. for the first time actually so we have like a game night with our company so you know um and yeah i played age of empires for the first time and i had no i just got i was i had like three people on a sheep and then like a horde of army just came and killed. i had no idea what to do there <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean um during um during like lockdowns and stuff i sort of got a little bit back into gaming i played a little yeah we are good Okay. Hi, Stefan. Hey. Hey. Um, welcome. Uh, yeah, good, good. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Um, yeah, new show. Uh, always uh, good to chat about Bitcoin and Lightning and, uh, you know, like the Lightning gaming space, which I know you are big in. Yeah, it's, um, we decided to do a, a niche of a niche podcast to talk about gaming and Lightning. If Bitcoin isn't niche enough, we go with Lightning. And if Lightning isn't niche enough, we go <laughs> Lightning Gaming. But... Lightning Gaming, yeah, it's another level. <laughs> yeah, it's niche now, but hopefully, you know, this is what brings Bitcoin mainstream or, you know, at least helps along the way. Um, yeah, yeah. Sure. 
Anyway, um, just a um, hello to the audience. Um, for those who don't know, this is uh, Lightning Lap. It's the show where we talk about Bitcoin gaming and get our host to do a lap around Satoshi Village. Uh, but more on that later. Uh, my very special guest today is I'm very excited. And I know I always say I'm very excited, but today I am actually very excited. We have the uh, the famous, I would say, Stefan Levera. So thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. me. Yeah. Just before I start, I just want to remind you of a little anecdote i think when we first met in japan uh, i don't know if you remember this uh but i think a lot of people got a little bit drunk and some people bailed out but there were three of us and we headed to karaoke yes yes, yes. you me and teriko teriko yeah you, you remember well um i just thought um when we went there i um i decided to sing a song especially for you knowing that you have like an austrian background and libertarian principles i thought I, you know i'm gonna sing uh, the tax man by the beatles but, <laughs> yeah great song great song because like it, I, the context of that song was like i think they were so pissed off about you know tax and so they were like this is like a tax protest song you know yeah yeah it was um i was surprised because like most bitcoiners don't know about it but i thought like it would be like the one of the bitcoin theme tunes but yeah you're right i think the the beatles i think they wrote it because they were like the official tax was like 95% suddenly, but they had to pay back yeah. taxes. So it ended up yeah, being like yeah. 105% or something. And yeah, then, I mean, I don't know, I don't know the, the full context, context of it, but uh, I can, as a libertarian, I can certainly appreciate the, the, the desire to rage against the taxes. And uh, certainly I appreciate that. So, and I mean, I kind of, I kind of knew all that story. So, you know, it was one of those ones that had been floating around and, you know, obviously the Beatles, very famous band. So you kind of, yeah, it's a cool story. Yeah. I, I'm trying to get a list of kind of Bitcoin songs together for when we can all meet up again. So we've got like money by <laughs> like Eric Chris, pump it up. You know that, don't you know, pump it up. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> I know that one. Okay. Yeah. Pump it up. Yeah. But there's, um, what about that other one? Do you remember this is like an OG song? It's, um. You know, uh, I have been holding for the longest time. Whoa. Oh, holding for the longest not... time. You know, the Zao Tongs. That's it. Zao Tongs. Okay. They did their own parody version of it. That was incredible. That's back from like, I think 2013 or 14. It was like a real OG kind of parody song. Really want... good one. It's on YouTube. Was that like Zao a Bitcoin song? Was that a Bitcoin? Um, well, it, it, it wasn't a Bitcoin song. It was a normal song, but somebody did like a Bitcoin version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Someone made a someone made like a parody song and turned it into a Bitcoin song about hodling, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, and it might have even predated the hodling term, so it was actually about holding, not hodling. Okay. So yeah, yeah, maybe because I, I don't know if it's true, but when I was in Tokyo, I met a guy who was a little bit drunk, but he claimed to have made the hodl word. He was. That was his thing at the Tokyo Bitcoin right. meetup. He said that he was a guy who kind of got drunk and misspelt it. But oh, okay. I mean, I, mean, I, I guess it's hard to prove these things. Maybe he would have to go back and prove that he owns that forum NIM at least. Yeah, uh, it could be because I, I heard that guy turned into a bcasher though. The, well, the guy who coined the term that we now use, HODL, that guy turned into a bcasher. That makes sense. That gives evidence to his theory because that was a Bitcoin Tokyo meetup, which was run by. Roger Ver, and he told me this before right. like Bitcoin Cash existed. So that whole meetup right. kind of, well, that meetup died and they all went to a Bitcoin Cash meetup. Yeah. So yeah. That, that makes sense. But he was a little bit angry that like, cause a lot of people were making t-shirts and stuff. 
you know yeah <laughs> yeah and like he like didn't cash in on it or something he should have trademarked it i don't know well it's 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 a, it's a costly era you know um just oh i just got reminded of some more uh bitcoin songs uh there's uh as Giacomo Zico might say that uh britney spears toxic or um system over down toxicity you know the, the toxicity of our city you know that one yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Ones. like there's um, money by like um Pink Floyd, right? I, I guess I'm kind of like a classic rock guy, so all my knowledge of music is like pre-1979 or something. Right, so, yeah, yeah. The old 70s rock and stuff like that. A lot yeah. of rap music, though. Yeah, I think. You're into like, um, like Iron Maiden and things like that? Uh, actually, that's more heavy metal. I've recently started to listen to Iron Maiden, but normally it's like Led Zeppelin and stuff. It's, I guess, like Stones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Led Zeppelin's pretty cool, man. I'll, I'll listen to a few of their songs. I, I, mean, I can't remember them off the top of my head now, but um, yeah, certainly yeah. some really cool songs. No songs about money. Yeah, yeah catalogue. <laughs> but like, all those bands got hit by this tax in England, which I think is one of the reasons why they all went to America, I think, you know, the whole like breaking America, a lot yeah. of this for tax reasons. So, well, that's the that's, that's that's thing. That's the thing, right? It's like you go to where the frontier is because, yeah, it's a bit higher risk, but it's also massive opportunity there. And that's that's just like Bitcoin as well. And that's also like Bitcoin Lightning and Lightning Gaming, right? You're out on the frontier. It's high risk, but it's high reward too. Like there's a massive market out there. There's a lot of opportunity and a lot of things, that, you know, whether you're a user or whether you are a developer or a builder, someone, an entrepreneur in the space, there's so much opportunity to come in these next you know, five, 10 years. I think this kind of goes into a theory that I think a few people have had, but kind of like Bitcoin is like the punk rock or it is like the rock and roll yeah. movement, right? Like you can't really start a band now and, um, and change the world, but um, you know, you can kind of like, I think it was David Bowie said, I saw in an interview, like he wouldn't be a musician now. He would like be a programmer or something. <laughs> when he was young, yeah, they maybe. wanted to like change society. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think um, if you know uh, Coinshaw NZ, he's done a talk and I believe this was Baltic Honey Badger 2019. So we're talking around September or October-ish of 2019. And... I think that was essentially the theme of his talk. It was like, Bitcoin is punk rock. This is like, it's a movement, right? It's not, it, yes, it's technology. Yes, there's like politics and economics and stuff, but it's a movement. It's about people who care about their freedom and who care about not being censored in the way they want to use their money and save or spend. And so I, I really think it is that. And, you know, uh, people are starting to see it for that as well. Like if you look at Nick Carter's piece, uh, A Most Peaceful Revolution, or other people, even... Um, Tim Draper's kid, I forgot his name, Adam Draper. Yeah, Adam I think Draper. he just recently tweeted out something saying, yeah, you know, it's like, um, you know, the internet is like the empire and Bitcoin is part of the resistance. It's like, you're part of the rebel alliance. <laughs> it's like Star Wars, right? It's like, you're the, if you're a Bitcoin person, you're, you're, you're on the rebel side. You're like, you're fighting for good against the forces of evil. So if you're a Bitcoiner, you're a Jedi is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. maybe like the Jedi masters are like the real, you know, like, they're like the leaders of the, you know, people like the people like developing and coding this out and making the tools for us to use. They're like the Jedi masters and a whole bunch of us are just like fighting in the revolution to like give everyone freedom over their money. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think kind of the, I think not just like programmers are important, but like people like you and stuff also play a vital role. Right. You know, um, and I think kind of. The community, in a way, is you know, it's kind of what the program's 
what the program is programmed for and you know um but yeah but having said that it's it, like bitcoin it there's not many other disciplines that well there's not many other things that encompass so many different disciplines right you know it kind of has technology it has philosophy it has economics it has politics it you know it has all sorts so um well let, let's just start here like so what was your introduction to bitcoin because you were like a Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're like a, a traditional finance guy. Was it PwC or something you worked for? Or? Yeah, so I used to work in big four accounting. That was how I started. So I in so in Australia, I'm a chartered accountant, which is equivalent to like US CPA. And I think in the UK, it's also called chartered accountant. Yeah. Um, and so that was my career. Like my normie career was being, you know, doing chartered accounting stuff. And so I was doing kind of like internal audit and similar related risks sort of work inside companies and big banks and things so i was at deloitte and big banks like commonwealth bank of australia which is australia's biggest bank back then um and so i like i guess the thing is i was always interested on the side in terms of austrian economics and libertarianism right so it wasn't really a professional interest that brought me into bitcoin it was my side interest that did but it's just that I had some experience from inside the beast because I'd been inside the banking world and I have some exposure to that and what it looks like inside that banking world. So for me, it's like most people, it was more like my second or third touch point, right? So I think my first touch point was like some Slashdot article, right? And I, you know, I, I kind so, of so, saw so, it. Just so like, you oh, were like yeah, the storm I didn't really understand the implication of it, you know? And so then the thing that made me like have my kind of sit up my orange pill moment was actually an Eric Voorhees article for all, And now I was reading this in December, 2012. Wow. pretty so early. I was in you... like, the, you know, the back of a car on a family holiday back in Sri Lanka. And I was just like scrolling <laughs> and I saw this article and it just like, it just hit me. It was just like, wow, this thing could really, uh, it just has these special characteristics. And I think the way Eric Voorhees, obviously I have my disagreements with Eric Voorhees nowadays, but still like he was the one who basically put me onto this back then. And so then, you know, like most people, I, I started my rabbit hole journey then. I was like hungry for Bitcoin content. I was trying to find articles and read about it and learn about it. And obviously one of the early people, you know, is someone like Andreas Antonopoulos, right? There were like YouTube videos and things like that. So I was watching some of Andreas and obviously I already had a lot of the Austrian kind of background. So I was already very much like anti-central banking and pro free market money. It was just that I sensed that it was mostly hopeless until I saw Bitcoin and was, you know, explained uh, and, and was learning a little bit more about why Bitcoin might work where previously other things have failed. And so then 2013 was kind of my journey and I, you know, was periodically writing a few posts here and there, but I wasn't like, I I wasn't like doing anything that kind of became famous in the community, but I was kind of chatting in the background with people like Pierre Richard and Michael Goldstein and stuff like that. And I was interacting with Pierre on Twitter and things like that. So that was, that was like my early exposure to this stuff. And so I was following, you know, Nakamoto Institute and just, already supplementing with my own understanding from reading Austrian economics and things like that, that was where the significance of it came through for me, really. So it was more like a side interest, but I was, if you will, primed because I was already a fan of Austrian economics, a fan of the free market, anti-central banking, and I was already a bit more of a tech savvy person, right? I played games growing up. I had studied information systems at uni in addition to accounting and finance stuff, and I was already a free market guy. So in some ways, I kind of hit the right 
markers or things that were that primed me to see Bitcoin for what it is. And so that was what gave me a huge advantage in understanding it a bit earlier than like I think most people did because a lot of people were thinking of it purely as like, oh, it's you know only payments or it's only this, that, or the other. And then a lot of people got confused and went into like random altcoins. And I, I, for me, it was just never, I was never really like into altcoins. Like I just basically saw Bitcoin. I was like, oh, this is amazing. And there were times where, you know, as you probably know, back in those days, there were all these different coins, like whatever, Aurora coin and yeah. PP coin and name coin and colored yeah. coins. I mean, there were so many of these altcoins and I, made I never really found them interesting. <laughs> yeah. Huh? I made a few tokens back in the day. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I know people tried out things like counterparty. And yeah, other, yeah. I mean, there was all, yeah, all these different things back then. But I just never, I guess, like I had heard, oh, Prime Coin. Maybe we'll have a coin that comes up with prime numbers. But I never even like bought bought that stuff or mined it. I just, I basically just got into Bitcoin and only Bitcoin. And I've been only Bitcoin the whole way. Uh, and so I guess I have a different journey to most people compared to most people because a lot of people have that journey where they where they went the uh, the scenic route through the the shit coins and then they came back to realizing where Bitcoin was the value. Whereas my journey was a little bit more. I was reading more like Nakamoto Institute and people like Peter Serta, Tour de Mista, Conrad Graf. Um, even Safety wasn't around in those days, right? He he, he hmm. sort of came around a couple of years later. Um, and then, so I was chatting with safety in the background as well, because I was kind of networking in the background with people like Pierre and stuff. And so, yeah, so essentially that was how I kind of came into the space. I think at the time, the rhetoric and the narrative was more anti-bank in general, as opposed to being anti-central bank. So my view is Bitcoin challenges central banks much, much more than it challenges just banking. I, I see cool. a role for banking. It's just that we have to reimagine that role of banking, right? In yeah, Bitcoin, we like... say you be your own bank, right? You run your own Bitcoin node and blah, blah, blah. But you might still use a, a service provider, right? So like, like it could be like the Unchained Capital model, the hybrid sort of model, or like it might be more like a family or community node sort of model where maybe you run your node for your family and they all kind of onboard to your bank and you are the banker for your family and your close friends, maybe. And so I think that's kind of the model that we have to reimagine. Um, but that's i mean yeah, yeah i remember so many... just to kind of yeah. rip on that a little bit i remember i think it was peter well i was speaking to once and he was like it was kind of joined the whole scaling debate and everything and um he, he said something that was quite interesting he said this isn't what he mm. wanted it's not an ideal situation but he would prefer like um a bitcoin where it's expensive to send but everybody could like validate the institutions that use it rather than a bitcoin that's easy to send but nobody knows what's going on kind of thing so i kind yeah. of think that was like an interesting point you know and and that kind of comes down to like i think if bitcoin obviously the more people who run nodes and can manage their node and their keys the better but obviously not a lot of people aren't going to be able to do that so if there's going to be different layers of trust like you said there's like a family bank or maybe there's just a reputable a reputable institution where they have like some sort of open accounting system with bitcoin uh, i think it, it's still a better world um but yeah, but you said quite a lot there. It's quite interesting. Um, something that I found quite interesting is that you were, um, you so you were already kind of like an Austrian economics guy whilst working in mainstream finance. But what made you like the Austrian economics guy? Like, did you have a a moment? Was your family always like 
you know, Austrian inclined or did you have like a, a light bulb? Yeah, so the funny like... thing is, I, so like a lot of young boys, you spend a lot of time on the internet, right? And so for me, when I was like 14 or 15, I would go on IRC, Internet Relay Chat. Now, for people who are a bit younger, you might not know, but that's kind of like an OG internet chat thing, right? Yeah. So when I was like 14, I was hanging out in, uh, in, in, funnily enough, an Australian politics channel. And this guy kept linking to Mises Daily articles, right? And I was like, what the hell? That, that's never going to work. Like anarcho-capitalism is not going to happen. And then like eventually I started, it started to make a lot more sense to me than what I was learning in my high school economics and business studies and those kinds of courses. So it started to just make a lot more sense to me. And then I, that was where I started to go down the whole Austrian rabbit Logic. hole. So <laughs> yeah, so it just logically, it just made so much more sense. Like it just kind of clicked. It just, it just was a much more correct paradigm to think about economics and what what's the impact of a minimum wage or the impact of x y and z government interventions you start to think of it from that point of view and so that for me like i've been into austrian economics well now over half my life right like i'm in my early 30s now and i was that started that process for me so kind of around like 15 ish i started like going becoming more and more libertarian and so then like when you're a bit younger you kind of read more articles right like you might not be able to like you know, be able to digest a full you know 800 page book but you start you start with articles and the smaller books and then as you kind of get more into it you graduate up to reading the full length books and economic treatises and things like that and so that is essentially what informs my perspective like when i'm doing interviews or when i'm talking about things or writing that informs my perspective about a lot of things uh, it, coming from a more free market perspective of trying to uh, like, yeah, essentially that informs my perspective. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of like, in a way you just got exposure to certain arguments. So I think a lot of the issue is people just never hear the Austrian argument, you know? Um, yeah, like, like, exactly. Like I, you know, to be honest, we don't really like in England, we didn't even, we don't really obviously, general primary schools and high schools don't teach economics but that's you know but if you ever watch the news or something you know it would just be a given that the current monetary theory is the status quo and you know um i remember just i had a moment when um it was actually in australia so we were actually in sydney at the same time it's, it's surprising we we never met because we kind of had our bitcoin moment at the same time but i guess we, we kind of miss each other but I remember there was a guy who, who he just said something like, um, uh, inflation is a tax on savings or something. And, you know, something yeah. like that. And it's like, it is a tax on savings. Like, you know, why am I saving? You know, <laughs> kind of things like little things. You just <laughs> have to question the mainstream, you know? Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It just takes a bit of learning. And I think that's part of what we're doing with these podcasts and, articles and online and social media is that we're doing an end run around the typical top-down ways of learning right like in school they have a curriculum and they've got a certain top-down thing where they teach you the keynesian stuff or the monetarist stuff or the otherwise interventionist stuff where do you actually learn the truth where do you actually go and learn that well sometimes you got to go and find it for yourself and a lot of it where, is when you yeah. i was gonna say a lot of it i think is when you actually start paying tax and what you, what you kind yeah. of like my first job was actually in Sydney, Australia, like my first real job, you know, and um, 
Normally, when you get a pay slip in a company, the tax is kind of, it's hidden from you. You don't really see it. But my boss, who was actually, he was quite, he was actually, he used to be a labor man, you know, he was a quite socialist thinking, but until he started to run a business. And every day he'd give us the paychecks, which in Australia, you get paid like uh, every two weeks, which is a bit different to the rest of the world. Every day he would give it us. He would say, this is what I'm paying you. This is what you're getting. This is going to the government. And that little, that actually, I think a lot of people don't see that. But once you start to see kind of tax you pay, I think that is also an educational moment for a lot of people. Um, oh, of course, 100%. I had the same phenomenon in terms of, obviously, I was libertarian, but for many of my friends from university many of them were lefties lefty type people but then once they started like earning real money and paying taxes that was when they started like now they didn't all become libertarians sure. but they a bit more conservative started yeah. to have more of an appreciation yeah. for this idea of hey you know why are taxes so high why should why are we paying this much you yeah know? yeah so, speaking to my grandfather he used to tell me that when he started to work he used to go on, on holiday off of the interest of his general savings account you know yeah just like you used to tell young people that that you can go on holiday off the interest of your just normal banking account it would be like it sounds yeah. foreign i right? mean it's even crazy. when i was a kid like that used to be a thing it used to be kind of they would teach you because this was back before interest rates were basically zero uh and they you actually used to get a return from that and funnily enough i think it kind of robbed people of the joy of saving and seeing it grow mm. because yeah. you kind of I think for me, I was one of those people, like even from a young age, I started working at like 14 years and eight months. And I, I was always a bit more of a saver, right? Like I would buy and I would save. So I think my story is probably a bit atypical, right? Whereas a lot of people come into Bitcoin and then they start to think more about saving because now, you know, they're in this um, environment where, you know, I think historically or at least like when we were younger when we were kids it used to be more like hey you save up in the bank account and you get some interest and yep. that used to be a really cool motivation factor for me because i used to feel like yeah i'm i'm like saving yeah, and i'm it's all about I'm getting more right? wealth, you know and <laughs> yeah. whereas now people are being robbed of that in some sense because if you leave your money in the fiat bank account you're losing 10 15 per year easily Crazy. and so in terms of purchasing power right so um that is another thing that I think Bitcoin changes for people. And hopefully people will start to appreciate that more once, once they can start to really truly save using Bitcoin. Yeah, well, I think it, it's obviously like I should give a disclaimer, you know, obviously Bitcoin is a risky asset. Don't put more than you're willing to lose, et cetera, et cetera. But I think for, for most people, if you work a normal job and you, you have a little bit of cash money, there's no way there's nowhere to put that, right? You're, like, you're kind of not an accredited investor. You can't invest it in assets or stocks. The best you can do is maybe try and get on the housing market. But I guess Bitcoin is, you know, that accessible asset that anybody, you know, can, uh, you, know, you know, preserve some of their wealth. Um, it's actually quite interesting. So we, um, Mint Gox, this uh, monthly esports event, we do. We, um, we started it almost a year ago, the first one in March. And people have, basically played games, um, they've competed in esports competitions and they've earned some Bitcoin. And the ones that have saved that are doing a lot better now <laughs> since the, the Bitcoin <laughs> price. So hey, they would have they would have gone like 10x. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It's just kind of but just that, that feeling of like, you've got something you've saved it, and it's worth more, right? But you know, it's kind of and th through gaming as well, right? You know, it's a and a lot of these people are kids from, you know, we don't know exactly where they're from but they're 
people from you know more poorer countries who've just got like a, an internet connection and they can just about play so i think i think it's quite a interesting kind of a dynamic there um so what so we were i i, I was in sydney you know when we're live i believe we are back again yep okay cool yeah, sorry about that, folks. We just had an issue with uh, the stream cutting out. Anyway, uh, Stefan was just telling us about how Bitcoin is in Australia. Um, so yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, like when I was in Australia, I kind of got the impression that Australians are quite back again. Um, yeah, Australians are kind of quite. I think they're quite down to earth people. They t tend to generally have like a good kind of like bullshit detector and <laughs> tend to be a little bit anti-authority do you, do you think that's fair to say historically but then you kind of yes yeah. i think nowadays <laughs> well given all the uh the the way how how quickly people folded for all this hysteria 19 stuff cool. i think uh that's like a it's like a historical uh yeah artifact of australian culture where you know there used to be kind of this idea of like you know ned kelly and you know mm, yeah Logan kelly, and sure. kind of famous australian rebel characters and larrikins and people like that i think certainly that's kind of the international perspective people have of like this kind of easygoing country where people are not afraid to have a laugh and laugh at themselves and laugh about things and kind of take what's called you know what's called a she'll be right attitude to things that's certainly what it was when i was growing up but i think we were kind of on this big down um where you know people externally view us that way and maybe the Australians you meet when you when they're traveling you know in non-hysteria times the, those are the ones where you know they'll be more kind of um they'll exaggerate those elements of their personality right like they're kind mm. of joke joke uh what's they're, they're very you know jocular or they like to joke a lot um they yeah they, they don't um take themselves too seriously and I think for the most part that's still there but I think it certainly i think there's kind of like a marketing angle right every country is a brand right cool. every country has their I'm own a kind gentleman of apparently yeah so i think that's that's kind of um the thing but yeah certainly growing up it was very much like that it was very much like people love to you know this whole idea of the larrikin culture like the people who are like, that's is that what you say rebels. the term happy Sorry? as larry comes from happy I think. Or lucky or whatever uh, yeah oh, happy as larry country, right? um i think we have it i don't know it, it, we have a term in england um, but we say, I'm as happy as Larry. I think you have it in Australia. Right. I think that comes from the larrikins. But what are the larrikins? I've heard it said, but I'm not too sure who they are. It might be quite interesting. I don't oh, think like anybody it. outside of Australia like, knows like about them. Loving, it's meant to be kind of like a, I guess, I haven't really thought about it, but I guess if I had to define it, it's kind of like a, a fun-loving, rogue, trickster, fun person. You know, So they, they don't necessarily oh, obey all the rules. Yeah. They're there to kind of, they generally are the kinds of person, you know, think sort of like a class clown character. Like a rogue, right? sort maybe? Of like a, oh. Yeah, there, there's some level of like rogue and some level of outlaw or rebel. A larrikin, according to the dictionary, is Australian and New Zealand, a term for a, boist a boisterous, often badly behaved young man, a person with apparent yeah. disregard for convention, a maverick. Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%, 100% that, yeah. So I think that is very much what the Australian culture is brand idealized is. as in some ways, right? That's a brand of Australia, right? Like we, we produce men who are like that, like in some sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think things change over time and 
I think, um, you know, that culture is sort of going a bit. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Maybe in yeah. the next few years they can rekindle, Australia can rekindle that, uh, that kind of brand and image, if you will. But I think for now it's, it, it seems to me more like an out, outward image that is projected than a reality uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's kind of it's interesting times, right? So all these kind of old stereotypes and things start to break away. Like I, I was kind of, I used to live in Japan and I went back to England. And one of one of my thoughts was that I kind of saw Japan as quite, um, it's a great place, but it's quite kind of strict, right? It's kind of, yeah. in a way, it's really, I'm going to offend a lot of people saying this, but it's a little bit like North Korea that was invaded by the Americans and kind of forced to open up. It was a hermit state. It had like a kind of dictatorship kind of thing right going on. It's it's kind of forced to open up. But that culture of kind of strict and follow the rules has kind of always been there. And then ironically, in England, which I thought was like this freedom loving, you know, a lot of, you know, <laughs> you know, the kind of Anglosphere, like liberty and all this kind of stuff. I'm locked in my house in England, not allowed to meet my family. Well, all my friends in Japan are going out drinking. It's kind of weird how like all my assumptions yeah. were completely wrong, you know. Uh, so, but yeah, I guess you know it's 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 2021, right? You know, we have Bitcoin is at like thirty, forty thousand. The world is a strange place. <laughs> yeah, you know? things are kind of topsy turvy, and things are changing. You know, what 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 things what countries became known for, they don't necessarily stay that way. And I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think in a way, like people in a way, they don't kind of, um, so what, they don't symbolize themselves as, they don't relate to the country as much anymore. They relate to maybe their, you know, probably their internet groups, you know, what forums yeah, are, I, are you in, like what chats, what spheres, that's probably where your nationality is. As well, you okay. know, like, because we're all, everyone's kind of plugged into the same, you know, Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and whatever other platforms. Or Discord or whatever. I know the gaming people go yeah, on. We're on um, they're kind of more plugged into those spheres. And so, you know, I think growing up, it might have been like there was probably four or five channels that most people were watching. And there was kind of a shared cultural knowledge of, oh, those jokes on those shows on Seinfeld or Simpsons or How I Met Your Mother and whatever shows that like everyone was watching. Uh, and it's kind of changing mm. over time. So yeah. I think it's kind of splintering off a little bit. But in some ways, it's a good thing that people can go do their own thing. They find their own interest. Um, but in other ways, maybe there's less of a shared cultural similarity. It was a time where everybody watched the same show. And we have that now. There are like some big shows that come out. But now it's like, what are you watching on Netflix? I'm watching this. Oh, I, 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 haven't, I, haven't, is that, I haven't watched that one. I'm watching this one. No, I haven't watched that one. <laughs> yeah. kind of, so yeah. kind of, it's quite an interesting time, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but this is a gaming podcast. I just, I, I, I know like, you know, you're not famous for being a gamer, but I'm sure you must have had a gaming moment when you were young. Do you have like a game oh, you liked or? And, and, yeah, I mean, yeah. I played lots of games as a kid. Like, okay, I, cool. I would play um, Counter Strike, StarCraft, oh. um, all kinds of real time strategy games. I played um, some of those games like Diablo and similar kinds of games. I was never like awesome at them, right? But uh, I, I was probably okay at Counter Strike amongst my group of friends, and I was like oh. decent at it back then. Um, I, what else did I play? Um, some of those more role-playing kind of games and things like Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic and Star Wars games like Rogue Squadron and Jedi Knight and, yeah, a bunch of games like that. What else did I play? Like Halo on Xbox One, like well, I think the first Xbox. Counter-Strike um, is quite a kind of um, interesting one 
you brought up because at the next Mint Gox, we're having the second Counter-Strike Bitcoin competition. So nice. I'm not sure if you're... Yeah. (laughs) Well, like, well, I mean, yeah, but maybe, maybe I'd play. But I mean, honestly, like, my reflexes and like my skill at Counter Strike nowadays would just be horrible. It's insane. Oh, it's insane how good some people are. Actually, well, um, the company I work for, Zebedee, we've actually integrated Bitcoin into Counter Strike. So this is the kind of thing we're rolling out. We're rolling out kind of public Counter Strike servers where you can earn Bitcoin over Lightning. So we're going to have like a range of different servers, more like noob friendly servers where it's like sponsored by you know an exchange or something (laughs) so everybody kind of wins you know but if you're better you win more yeah 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 so maybe we can have you uh, one of those there's like the whole pub thing pub level games and then there's like actual you know clans or whatever level games where there's like more semi let's call it like semi pro or kind of more serious people who take it more seriously and then obviously the pro level which is just like well (laughs) yeah well above um but i mean every now and again when i was a bit like maybe in my 20s we would play some games like just with friends as well like play some starcraft together or play some counter-strike together or whatever um so yeah i mean i have played counter-strike go as well i have played counter-strike um oh so you're playing 1.6 before yeah yeah. i played a lot of Mm 1.6 and then later i played the new one as well um the like the current one yes yes go. um oh. that, yeah last time i played yeah and oh i used to play a lot of team fortress 2 as well that was a really mm-hmm. fun game. that was really fun one of those like online games where you're kind of collaborating with the team yeah that's yeah. kind of fun as well um what else uh, age of empires i think i played three maybe i played that yeah. for the first time actually so we have like a game night with our company so you know um and yeah i played age of empires for the first time and i had no i just got i was I had like three people and a sheep and then like a horde of army just came and killed. I had no idea what to do there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, during um, during like lockdowns and stuff, I sort of got a little bit back into gaming. I played a 